This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Raw Material, an arts and culture podcast from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. I'm your host and podcaster in residence, Alice Wong. This season I'll be sharing five episodes from my podcast Disability Visibility highlighting disabled artists and curators, and connecting them with artworks in the museum's collection. Today's episode from 2020 is all about disabled dancers with India Harville, an African-American queer disabled femme teacher, somatic body worker, dancer, instructor, activist, and educator. You'll hear India talk about how she became involved in dance and what it means to her, what access-centered movement is and how it's rooted in disability justice, and the connections between bodywork, dance, and healing. And by the way you might think I'm a robot but I'm not. I am using a text-to-speech app which is quite a performance in itself. And keep in mind the app may mispronounce some terms and names but it is what it is. Are you ready? Away we go. Five, four, three, two, one. So, India, uh, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. India, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and just uh, share a little bit about who you are and your background and anything else you'd like to share? Sure. So um, my name is India Harville, and I have many loves in the world. Most of my time is spent exploring the world of dance as a dancer and choreographer. Um, I'm also a body worker with an interest in all things related to embodiment and deepening our connection to ourselves. And I'm also a disability justice activist. You know, because today's episode is about dance, but I want to explore all of these things that you do and that you're passionate about. Uh, Let's first talk a little bit about dance. Uh, When did you realize you were meant to become a dancer? I love this question, and it's such a... I think my answer is sort of funny because it wasn't like a, aha, yes, I've discovered, I've realized I'm a dancer. It really happened kind of organically and slowly. Um, I dabbled in dance a lot as a young person, um, but it really didn't start coming alive for me until I was in college. And then I started taking dance classes, and I was like, oh, this is how I understand the world. This is where I go when I have problems and the solutions just come to me instead of like trying to figure it out. Um, and so I was like really hooked in dance for me as in the beginning was really a practice space and an exploring space for what I needed to be able to manage my life. And from there I started 
doing that with other people I loved and we started making dances together and being like, oh, well, that's kind of pretty. <laughs> um, and then we started sharing those and people wanted to see them more and more. And so it was sort of like I was revealed to myself mm-hmm. as a dancer. And I think that's probably true for a lot of artists where it's not this the movies and aha moment where you know things kind of sneak up on you and that's things organically build and evolve um, were there any I guess dancers and choreographers that were particularly influential for you I think um, as a young person like a college days person I didn't really see myself reflected a lot in the world of dance. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wasn't particularly interested in like a certain way. I wasn't interested in like ballet. Um, My interest in ballet is sort of, again, about how it makes me feel and what it creates in me, but not in terms of the aesthetic of it. And so there were, looking around a lot of dancers in my younger years, I didn't have that many role models. Um, I was really interested in the work of Alvin Ailey, um, largely because they told African-American stories and they utilized African-American dancers. Um, But the genre still wasn't exactly what I was looking for, although their work is stunning. Um, And then as I got older, I started finding artists that weren't kind of mainstream artists. And particularly as I started doing a lot of mixed abilities dance and access centered movements, I started looking and seeking for dancers who, whose work was more in alignment with my politics and my values and the way I move in the world as a person. I definitely say Sins and Salad was a big influence um, on my political identity as well as my identity as an artist. Um, definitely um, Antoine Hunter, mm-hmm. a major influence for me. Um, and then some of the choreographers that I work with now. Um, I work with someone at Cal State Hayward, and I think Eric has probably been the most influential person in terms of developing how I think about dance and performance in a lot of ways. So those names come to mind. So when you do dance, if it is possible to kind of describe it, you know, what is the feeling and what do you get out of it? Because I think that's, you know, we're talking, we're using words, but so much of dance is not about words. So for the listeners or readers of this transcript, what goes through your feelings, emotions, sensations as you dance? Dance for me feels sort of like a homecoming, like a returning to some core sense of self. I also think, like, I think in order to talk about how dance feels for me, I have to say a little bit about how the mainstream conceives dance often and where I differ from that. 
I think capitalism has made everything a commodity and made it so that we think of sometimes dance and singing and many kinds of things as there are people who are good at and there are people who are not good at it. And there are people, and only the people who are good at it should do it. And that's not my framework. Um, And for me, I'm far less concerned with how dance looks and much more concerned with how it feels, what it connects me to, what it helps me resolve and how it helps me live my life. Um, And I think... I don't think dancing, you know, there's a range of dance. There's the dance that happens in my kitchen when I'm just playing around with my partner and there's dancing at a club and there's dancing on a stage. And so there's a wide breadth of what, um, what and where dance happens. But for me, I think when I'm dancing, I feel the most free. And I feel like there's nothing, nothing can be going on in my life that I can't bring to dance and have some sort of alchemical shift occur where I come out with a different understanding of what I came in with. And that happens very in my bones and in my actual physicality. You know, uh, you mentioned on your websites that uh, you start identifying as a disabled person around uh, 2011. And, you know, what has that journey been like for you and what it means to try to identify as a disabled dancer? Yeah, I think that I was descriptively disabled from very early in my childhood. Um, But I think in a lot of ways, I think the legacy of chattel slavery has really taught not all, of course, but some segments of African diasporic people to try to minimize anything that's going on with our bodies that could be dangerous, you know, that could lead to us having been sold, um, lead to us being murdered, could lead to us um, not being able to stay with our families. And so I think I grew up in a household where the thought was like, you know, don't claim that, don't lift that up, um, minimize that as much as possible. And in 2011, I was at a Fems of Color symposium and Mia Mingus spoke. And as she was sharing about what it was to be um, descriptively disabled versus politically disabled, I felt like I was kind of being called to task. (laughs) I mean, it was a very gentle way that she delivered it, but it really landed for me that I wasn't living inside of a truth of my body in the world in a way that I needed to and wanted to. And I think that that slowly started a process of me 
claiming the realities of my body and being more open and public about it. Mm -hmm. And it certainly has, you know, at times it's been very challenging, I think, inside of some of the communities that I am a member of. And it's also been an important part of my journey. And I think it kind of, ironically, right around that time, Mm -hmm. my disabilities intensified. And I started Mm -hmm. using a manual wheelchair. Um, And that opened up, you know, I, I started, I was paralyzed on my Mm -hmm. right side for quite some time. And as I was relearning to use my right side, I, as soon as I could get into a wheelchair, Mm -hmm. I got myself back to dance class because that was home for me. And I was encountered a shocking level of ableism inside of the dance world that when I wasn't out as disabled and when I was more able body passing, um, I wasn't having to reckon with. And so I think those two things happening so close together was really pivotal in some of the shifts I made and were sort of the beginnings of me recognizing that I needed dance spaces that made room for all different kinds of bodies to be in the experience. And from there, I found more and more access-centered movement experiences and classes and teachers and really found a, a sense of myself and started to feel more reflected in the dancers around me. Okay, did you also expand a little bit more about what you mean by access-centered movement, because I think, you know, a lot of people may not be familiar with this kind of perspective and a framework. So how would you kind of describe that? I think that there is a lot of challenge in the world of creating dance that is accessible for more kinds of bodies. And you'll hear terms like mixed abilities dance, which means people have, some people have disabilities, some people don't. You'll hear terms like inclusive dance, which, you know, is trying to include everyone. And why I really like access center movement as a framework and as a way of talking about this is because access centered movement understands mm-hmm. it's based in disability justice. And it understands that what we need in order to show up in a space as a group of people is a complex set of meeting our access needs. Sometimes we have conflicting needs at the same time and we have to get creative in how we can make a space work. Sometimes we're unable to meet a specific need at a stage in the process, and we have to be accountable to that. I feel like um, access-centered movement centers creating spaces that work for more and more bodies and understands that that takes time 
and is a practice that we haven't perfected yet and that we continue to work on it. For example, let's say you are a instructor in your class or, you know, designing a performance. How do you kind of really make that real? There's a building access. Or do you give some examples? Oh, so many examples come to mind. Um, I think a lot about who shows up in my classroom and what access looks like for them. But I also think a lot about who's not coming to my class Mm -hmm. and what are the barriers that prevent them from coming. And often what are the emotional challenges and scars that people often have from really traumatic experiences they've had around movement classes or dance Mm -hmm. or even physical therapy and their relationship Mm to Western medicine. And so what are some of the kinds of access I can build in that really show folks that the space Mm -hmm. could be a positive experience for them? So that's one thing that I think about. The other thing I think about is many different kinds of disabled folks show up in my classes. And we're looking for what we can do to be together um, and create movement. And so sometimes it means I'm looking for what are the common things that we can do as a, as a group to give us a unifying mm-hmm. place to enter our movement from. So that might mean, you know, I've had classes where some people were having a really hard time with a lot of Uh, large movements in their body and maybe some people didn't have capacity for large movements and so we could create a dance that was about just Mm. turning our heads and blinking so really finding like what are our common elements and then allowing the genius of using those things to come alive in our space so that's another kind of example and then on the performance side for myself and this is still tricky how to build performances in which I don't know what I'll be able to do on a given day because I have a disability where my capacity varies really vastly. And so designing very open and spacious kinds of choreography or kinds of scores or just the pattern of what's going to happen so that I could do it if I were standing or if I were in a wheelchair or scooter um, or if I might even need to lie down. So thinking, and that's a really different way than choreography is usually created. Another thing I like about that is it means that you can interchange any number of dancers into those spaces. If you've created an idea about what the choreography is going to express, that can be expressed by a variety of different bodies. And so that feels really exciting to me. And then inside of performance space, also thinking about what's accessible for the audience and building in all kinds of accessibility. 
Um, that ranges from things like having the option for folks to have my program in Braille and maybe having a tactile experience where people can come and touch the set and touch me as I'm moving through aspects of the choreography. So those are the kinds of, you know, those are just some examples, but I could go on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. I really uh, appreciate it because I think, uh, you know, a lot of people still don't, you know, they haven't been to those kinds of performances. So I think that's a really wonderful way to illustrate how performances really can be much more accessible and open to all kinds of people, not just the performers, but, you know, clearly the audience. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're a body worker, and for people who don't know what that means, um, could you tell me about what it means to be a somatic body worker? Yeah. Um, Soma is just a fancy word for the body. And Mm -hmm. I offer a lot of body-based practices and massage and different ways of touching the body when folks are okay with touch that are designed to help people deepen their connection with their own body. And that can be, you know, ways of touching someone to help them become more aware of their breath or it can be touching someone and helping loosen the muscles so that they can feel Mm -hmm. what it feels like to have less tension in their body. Mm -hmm. So it's a wide range of kinds of tools that just help people feel more comfortable um, inside of their body. And working with people for whom comfort in the body is a very slippery slope. It's not always that easy. Yeah, and I think this speaks to the uh, medical industrial complex and like, you know, ableism and capitalism that so many of us are completely kind of alienated from our bodies or that we're you know, taught to be, you know, like to kind of uh, have a very difficult relationship with our bodies. So, you know, how does your understanding of bodies tie in with performing and dancing? Because clearly your work as a body worker must feed into that and it goes back and forth as an artist? I think one thing that's really important for me in my work, whether that's making art or doing social justice or um, dance, is helping people understand that everything their body does is okay. And every way they show up enriches the space and is acceptable. And I think Mm -hmm. what I love about dance as a way to help people feel that 
is that it's not just an intellectual conversation or thinking about it. I remember a very pivotal moment for me in a dance training where I was a student and I would have moments where I would have seizures and or paralysis and I'd be unable to move. And people in the space were learning how to be with me at those times. And I had been in so many dance spaces where that was considered a problem and I needed to be like ushered away and hidden somewhere. And this was the first time where it was considered just what was and it was considered beautiful Mm -hmm. and part of the choreography and something to be with. And that was such a healing moment for me because that wasn't something I was even always able to do for myself. And I still struggle with it sometimes. But to have that experience be something that happened at a cellular level that my body felt was really different than intellectually talking about it. And I think that that's one of the medicines for me of dance. And I think that's even true to me at the level of social justice. So there's a lot of times where we have these intellectual frameworks and we have these ideals of what we want to be living into, but we're not as skilled at embodying them and being them with each other. And I think there's something about the practice of dance that is great training ground for living our principles and in real time doing the things that we've been thinking about with our bodies, with each other, to kind of let that sink in to a deeper depth. And I think that that's some of the ways I see the tie between healing and dance and the arts. And, you know, we're talking in January 2020. It's a new year. It's a new decade. Uh, you know, as we wrap up, I want to ask you, I guess, a final question. It's, you know, what are you looking forward to in the coming years for yourself, just, you know, personally and, you know, professionally? Like, what are some of your ambitions, your dreams, your goals? Yeah, you like to share with us. Yeah, I have to just say I'm so grateful that you interviewed me because sometimes I say these things and then I realize like, oh, I need the reminder. Um, you know, 2019 was a challenging year for me and I've been grappling a little bit with what does it look like for me to be a dancer in this place of very, very limited capacity right now. And this conversation is making me realize like, oh, there's a lot of things I'm excited about. Um, I'm really interested in choreographing with other folks and choreographing group work 
um, which I think is sort of my growing edge. And I'm working on a show that's called Secrets and Silence. And it's developing at the pace it develops. It may not come out in 2020, but I'm really excited to be looking at how to develop choreography at times when I can't dance physically. Mm-hmm. So is it imagining the choreography? Is it having someone else move the choreography on my behalf? You know, so I'm in some interesting inquiries for myself mm-hmm. and I'm excited to be exploring those things. Mm-hmm. And I think personally, I'm also, I have a lot of dancers in my life who are in deep mourning because they can't move the way they used to move. And some of that has come up for me as well. And looking at places where we can generate work from the capacity we have in the moment feels really exciting for me. Yeah, I think there are, uh, you and I know as disabled people, we're just like super innovative just for that, because of the sheer, you know, fact that the world was not made for us and that, you know, your kind of developments in choreography and thinking about changes in bodies over time as dancers, I think there's so much to be learned by the broader dance world in terms of just, you know, how to really open things up. So I'm just really thankful for you. Mm, Thank you. I think that there's so many dancers who come to me who work in really able-bodied spaces who say to me, oh, you know, I really don't hear very well and I don't, there's not a lot of space for me to talk about that or, you know, I'm aging and there's not a lot of conversation about what it is to be an older dancer. And I think oftentimes disability justice and those of us working at these intersections have real tools and real experience to like offer back and I do hope that that conversation can occur more. For more art that explores embodiment, be sure to visit SF MoMA's second floor. One of the five 2022 Sika Art Award winners Binta Ifemi bends the flow and energy of the space with material interventions and activations. The immersive installation is an extension of Ayafemi's work in reclaiming spaces for black and indigenous art and joy. Another artist that explores embodiment is Yinka Shanabare and the connections are fascinating. Harville works in embodiment by fostering a sense of the body as a vehicle for growth and transformation. Shanabare, who is disabled, works on cultural hybridity and maintaining traditions under colonialism by giving them literal human form. 
Explore these works and more in the museum's second floor galleries, free of charge during all open hours. Visit Raw Materials landing page for additional links to related works of art. While you listen along this season please note that artwork locations can fluctuate. Be sure to log on to the SF MoMA website to check out what's on view when you stop by. This episode was written, hosted and produced by me, Alice Wong. Text transcript by Cheryl Green. Theme music by Wheelchair Sports Cam. See you on the flip side.